It's 6.02 here in New York City, and welcome to the Morning News Show. It's 44 degrees out and sunny, and our first segment is the Kennedy Kennelly Gossip Corner. If you want the facts, go to NBC, honey. You want the truth? Stick around, because Kennedy Kennelly has the mud. This morning, Burt Reynolds filing for divorce from Sally Fields. Honey, a lot of people are waking up, but we have not slept for a second. In fact, the party is just finishing here at Elaine's, where the cast of Saturday Night Live and the Lower Manhattan Gambino is party till the cows came home. And I am here to say, moo. Here's Groovy World singer Money McDonald's. Money, how was last night's soiree? It was tasty, baby. Like the ice cream on a strawberry shortcake. Money McDonald's, I know exactly what you mean. Some players from the Lower Manhattan Gambinos are filing out of the bar. Yes, fellas, that is the sun. Hurts, don't it? Here is, I think we can get, yep, here is Gambino's player, Barnsley Thug. Hey, Barnsley, you look like you've been punched in the face. What happened? Got punched in the face. Threw some punches. It's a quiet night out. And are you aware that you have a game in 12 hours? Oh, twat. Oh, here's Mr. Clean. And wow, Mr. Clean just brushed right past me, like I'm not even here. I know I'm pale right now, but I'm not a ghost. Who was he with? Was that... Oh, my stars. That was Isabella Gambino. The two of them leaving together? Well, that is some dirty mud. Some dirty mud indeed. But remember, you didn't hear it from Kennedy Kennelly. That aired the morning after the Gambino's Game 4 victory. That gossip segment set the city ablaze. The star player sleeping with the team owner's wife? That sounds like something out of a movie. But the pitching matchup for Game 5 was a story straight out of the Old Testament. And here we go, game five. The Gambinos are looking good and loose out there, which might come as a surprise to some because of the well-documented shit kicker that went on last night. But I suspect, since I was partying with them myself, that the team is still completely hammered. I know I am. And the crowd goes fucking bananas as the American hero himself, Lane Bryant, walks out to the hump. He stops and looks into the picker's dugout. What's he looking at? Oh, yeah, the kid with the purple hair, the one pitching for the pickers. Oh, yeah, that's his son. I totally forgot about that. Wow, this is going to be crazy. Another chapter in the story of Lane Bryant. What a life this man has lived. Lane Bryant was always destined for greatness. Born on the 4th of July in Meridian, Mississippi, 1942, Lane was the son of Mayor Brian Bryant and former Miss Mississippi Jelly Ann St. Clair Bryant. He met his wife, Sweetness Marmot, when they were five, and by the time he was old enough to marry her, 16, he was an Eagle Scout and an All-American in baseball, football, and a weird Southern sport they don't play anymore called Dust Plank. Drafted first overall by the Washington Senators in the 1961 MLB Draft, Lane blew through the minors with a high 90s fastball and a devastating curveball. In his rookie year in the majors, he won his first of five Cy Young Awards. More importantly, his wife gave birth to their son, Colby Bryant. After a one, two, three from Lane, here comes to the mound his son, Colby. This kid's a phenom, but he's also weird, I think. Anyway, I heard there's no love lost between these two, and they have been estranged for some time. I don't know what this kid's problem is. I haven't talked to my old man since I was nine. 
and I turned out fucking great. Of course, my dad didn't go to Vietnam. He went to jail for getting his age of consent by state mixed up. Lane decided to enlist while overseas with John Wayne to do a USO show for men in Vietnam. The two men went over in the winter of 1965 to entertain the troops with their Who Loves America More arm wrestling hour. Well, Lane Bryant, looks like you whooped me. Well, Duke Wayne, I sure did. Put her there, partner. Not too hard. We just arm wrestled. John Wayne returned, but Lane Bryant stayed behind. At the end of the tour, Sweetness and five-year-old Colby waited at the airport for Lane, but instead they were met by John Wayne, and the Duke delivered a message from Lane. Hello, Sweetness. Hello, Colby. By now you have learned that I didn't ride back with the Duke. This horse is staying here in Vietnam with the Navy. Not because I want to, but because my country needs me to. There came a time for me to get on my horse and fight communism. They tried to make me a general, but I insisted on being a private. It's the harder path, but it's the only one this old horse is willing to go down. Someday, after this race is over and I have galloped far and wide, I will return. Until then, your husband and father. Is he a horse or does he have a horse? It's unclear, and it's also unclear why the best player in baseball would willingly leave at the height of his powers to fight in a war without being asked. This took a major toll on Sweetness and young Colby, who were left to fend for themselves in the Bryant family's empty home. Meanwhile, Lane was halfway across the world, fueling up fighter jets on an Air Force base outside the Myling province, where he met future Senator John McCain, a man who he had a truly shocking amount of disdain for, which he talked about at length in a letter to Sweetness. My dearest Sweetness, I have met a man who truly makes me want to punch my horse. None of the epithets or slurs that I know seem to be adequate. I hate him so much more than I hate any other person, be they of any race or creed, that it has made me rethink all of my past prejudices. If a white man can be this much of a pissant, then maybe we're all equal. God damn this John McCain fella. God damn him to hell. Notice that in these letters, Lane never asks how they're doing. It's either... I'm doing something good for the country, or John McCain shanghaied my mashed potatoes yesterday. The John McCain mashed potatoes letter was the last thing he would ever say to Sweetness Marmot. One summer day, while Colby was inside reading The Hobbit, Sweetness went down to the pond in their backyard. She drowned there, something Colby did not notice until a few hours later. Hey, Colby Bryant delivers the O2 to Ben Laden. Got him looking on strike three. Three up, three down. We are scoreless through three innings. God, the Gambinos look like hell. Ben Laden just took a seat at home plate and is now so hungover, he's crying. And now Lane Bryant is running around the field so he can pass his own son as he walks to his own dugout and... Oh! He just shoulder checked his kid. Hell yes. Hell yes. He hates his kid. Lane was a wreck after the death of his wife. His shipmate said he became erratic 
and forgot most of his duties. One day, according to rumors, in his grief, he failed to adequately fill up John McCain's plane with fuel before a mission, leading to John's crash and eventual capture by the Vietnamese. A few days later, Lane was quietly discharged and sent back home. Home to the United States, not his actual home. On the plane, Lane signed a contract to pitch for the Houston Astros. Who, by the way, at the time were called the Houston Colt 45s, which is sick. Also on that plane ride, Lane wrote a letter to his son. Colby, though I as a father do not blame you for your mother's death, when looking at the sequence of events from a clinical point of view, I can easily see how one might find you at fault for it. You made the choice to read those elf books, and I believe a person your age should be held responsible for his actions. So I'm going to send you to Nashville to live with your grandfather, and I will return to my life as a baseball hero. Good luck, Colby. Keep your wits about you. So as Lane returned to the majors, seven-year-old Colby went to live with his grandfather. This move would set Colby on an unlikely path to the majors. Lane wasn't the only great pitcher in Colby's life. His grandfather, who he was now living with, was legendary St. Louis Browns pitcher Cuckoo Marmot. From a newspaper article on the day Cuckoo retired in 1946, Cuckoo Marmot had three pitches that were up there with the best of them, and he damn near invented 12 more. Sometimes he threw close to underhand, Sometimes he would stick his arm up straight in the air when he threw, whatever it took to get that particular batter out. Should Cuckoo ever teach anyone as much of the game as he knows, he could raise a great pitcher, one who could be like our great bombers to the batter's Japanese civilians. Once again, that's the only metaphor anybody had. So this was the man who took young Colby out into the backyard to throw the ball around. If you take a look at Colby Bryant's life, it becomes very obvious that nobody ever asked him if he wanted to play baseball. As a matter of fact, it's very obvious that he didn't. Well, it's the first spot of trouble for our young Japanese boy. After Deej's bloop single and a pop-up there by Opie White, who looks like he's been drinking the water out of West Virginia well. He looks sick. Bryant stretches and delivers to Clean, who grounds up the middle. Will it find a hole? No! Suleiman is there. Flips to Clunker, who fires to Crunch, and that is the inning. Scoreless through four. Both Bryants have been magnificent, though Colby, as usual, does not seem to care. The trauma he suffered at a young age pushed the already quiet and thoughtful Colby deeper into the world of fantasy. The only way that Cuckoo could get Colby to practice baseball was by threatening to take away his cartoons. Colby loved cartoons, and he used Lane's generous stipend to buy the largest color TV in Nashville. It was 10 inches and cost $450. On it, he would watch the Jetsons, Looney Tunes, and Flintstones. But it was a different type of cartoon that would captivate him as he got older. One fateful day when Colby was 14, the city of Nashville was visited by Shen Yoon, you know, from the billboards. They did whatever show they do, and Colby saw it at the Grand Ole Opry. From that point on, according to Elliot Van Leer, Well, Colby was obsessed with anything that came from Asia. Not in the way that me and Burt Reynolds were, but in a strange and frankly concerning way. What bothered you about it? I mean, I met him when he was 18, and the first thing he said to me was, I've watched 2,000 hours of anime. And I said, who's anime? She your neighbor? 
peeping on your neighbor, you dirty dog? And then he spent all the bullpen session explaining to me what Gundams were and what little Japanese cartoon people did to each other. He showed me a journal that he called his blog. Nobody knew what that meant. And he had taken a lot of notes and drawn all the different characters kissing. It upset me for a long, long time in ways that I couldn't and still to this day can't process. I felt as though I was looking through a dark portal into a nightmare future world. Colby spent his entire high school years watching Japanese cartoons. He wouldn't go to school, he would pitch all day, and at night, as a reward, he would get to watch anime, read the first ever mangas imported into America, and play video games invented by the Japanese. Despite all of his off-putting fascinations and obsessions, one thing was indisputable. Colby Bryant could pitch. He had the natural skills, and Cuckoo taught him pitches that no one had ever seen. Some of his opponents started watching anime to see if they could learn where those pitches came from. But it didn't work. Colby's family talent and highly traumatic childhood made him a weapon that was equal parts athleticism and unhealthy coping mechanisms. The only person who didn't appear to be excited about the young pitcher's potential was up in New York, pitching for the Gambinos. People are starting to talk about your son being the next great pitcher, Lane. My son has always been weak of spirit. And I suspect that will continue the more time he spends away from his degenerate kitty shows. I hope that for his sake, none of his games have to start in the daytime, as I suspect at this point, he is part vampire. Has the prospect of you pitching against your son never crossed your mind? No, sir, it hasn't. But I'm sure if it does happen, neither of us will have any feelings about it. The bases are loaded. And you know what? So am I. Opie White steps back into the box with blood flowing freely from his nose. Lane delivers the 0-2 in. Strikes him out looking. Huge strikeout. We go into the sixth inning still scoreless. Opie White is trying to go to first base seemingly with the belief that he has just walked. The first base coach is leading him back to the dugout, feeding him a block of cheese. Colby walks back out to the mound and nope, he's heading to the Gambino's dugout and he is Folks, I, I, I think he's meowing at him. And, and now he has a bull yawn and he's playing with it. What the hell is this kid's deal? The incredible hype around Colby was measured in this article around the time of the draft. Quote, Fans flock early to see what this young pitcher will wear to the game. Usually a long black leather duster, sometimes accented by a pair of cat ears. When it is hot out, he may askew the duster in favor of what he has mysteriously called his Invader Zim shirt. Then the fans stay to watch him throw 90 plus miles per hour and sliders that seem to corkscrew. And then more fans come tomorrow to see just how much taller he's gotten. The next line was printed with a typo. A typo that would give Colby his nickname for his whole career. It was surely supposed to read... This kid is growing like a weed, but the final letter was misprinted. And from the day he was drafted on, Colby was known as the Weeb. We are delighted to announce the signing of a local boy, Colby Bryant, here to a six-year contract. Colby, would you like to say anything to the fine folks gathered here today? Uh, I'm Pickle Colby. <laughs> Listener, 
Are you free this Saturday? Are you free all day? Do you have an interest in American history, specifically the Civil War? This week's sponsor of A Closer Look is going to the museum with Nate. Me and Will had plans. We did, but I can't make it. You can't make it? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Will agreed to help find someone cover the cost of the ticket that I bought for him. So I'm using our ad read this week to find a replacement. We're looking for one of you to go to the Smithsonian Museum of American History this Sunday. This is a really good weekend to go because the Smithsonian added a whole new trove of weapons. Do you want to see James Longstreet's sword? What about the prototype for the original Gatling gun? Of course you do. You'd be taking the Amtrak from New York. The train gives me plenty of time to reflect on what I saw. But you have to stay there all day. You get to stay there all day. Nate's very thorough at the museum. I read nearly all the little things on the wall. You know the 32-minute movie thing museums play every hour? I watch that. And if you show up when it's halfway done, you have to watch the second half and then the whole thing over again. After, I'll treat you to dinner at Fuddruckers. I've never been to a Fuddruckers. Nate loves regional chain restaurants and wants to try every single one. And you get a free meal. I keep a list of all the chains. It's a tiered list. The tiers are color-coded. Yeah, Nate, okay. The highest color is red. Only three chains are in the red tier. Shake Shack, Bojangles Chicken, Hooters. Nate. The level below red is orange. There's nothing wrong with being an orange. Okay, I think we're good. The difference between an orange and a red can come down to whether they use the right type of ice cubes. I like the tiny ice cubes that are like popcorn. All right, if that sounds good, just DM me on Twitter or something. And it's the seventh inning stretch of game five here at the Marlboro Camel. This father-son matchup has been as advertised, or maybe our boys are just massively hungover. Oh, what's this? Oh, the Chinese. There's some very long strings and they're dangling down some beers to the Gambino's dugout. There is Leroy Brown shotgun in his. The team is celebrating as if these beers are manna from heaven. This may just be the shot in the arm we need, or it might put them to sleep. A dangerous game is afoot in the Gambino's dugout. But will it be enough to stop Colby Bryant? Elliot Van Leer recalled when Colby first got a chance to pitch. You have to understand, this was the South. They saw a strange-looking boy acting the way he did, and they were suspicious of that. But then they saw him pitch. As the Reverend put it in his autobiography... He had a lot of doubters and folks who were suspicious of his ways, and he proved them wrong the first time he headed out to the mound. Well, headed out to the mound ain't right. He sprinted from the pen, leaning forward with his arms straight out behind him. I was worried for the first pitch when, sweet Moses, that boy threw a 97-mile-an-hour slider right down the pipe. And I thought, you know what? If he keeps throwing like that, I'll dye my hair purple, too. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If I ever dye my hair like that, you should kill me. Because I'd kill you. Colby silenced all of his critics in his first major league start, throwing a complete game shutout. Five days later, he threw another shutout. And then another shutout. He didn't give up an earned run until his sixth start in the majors. Colby Mania hit Nashville and hit it hard. His starts quickly became critter nights, and fans would show up to the park wearing homemade animal fur. They even convinced Cedric Entertainer to wear a big green fox costume to a press conference. Teddy Kronz is out tonight with a concussion. A lot of guys are sad that he's out for a week, but it's important to remember that win or lose, Teddy is going to need his strength for the fights ahead. 
And I'm not talking about baseball. I'm talking about getting up in the morning and trying to live with the people who depend on you. The people who will cry if you're gone. Sir, can you explain the costume? Uh, this is my first Sona. Colby pitched brilliantly throughout the playoffs. He went 4-0 leading up to the World Series, including an eight-inning one-hit outing in the clinching game of the NLCS. The Pickers fans were excited to see Colby pitch in Game 1 of the World Series. But two hours before the game was set to start, Reverend Roper delivered some devastating news during his pregame gospel service. Money belongs to God, and I will make sure yours gets to him directly. Now, I have some bad news to deliver. Colby Bryant will not be pitching tonight. He sustained an injury to his pitching hand. As we all know, we have provided Colby with all the latest Japanese video game consoles that plug into the television. Many of you have never played these, but I can assure you they are more addicting than drugs. And Colby, well, he has sustained a blister on his right thumb playing this game called Space Invaders. This is further proof that the devil will come for us all. I am assured that his games have been taken away, and he will return at some point to the series. The Reverend hoped that delivering this news during the prayer would keep the crowd peaceful, but it didn't work. Instead, the crowd simply began aiming all of their trash at the gold thrown behind home plate. But that was game one. By game five, all of that had been forgotten. Back in the Marlboro Camel Stadium, seven innings had gone by without a single run. Colby Bryant had thrown 82 pitches. Lane Bryant had thrown 85. This was great news for both teams because Cedric Entertainer was still nursing his bullpen back to health, and Buddy Dwyer thought Mel Nash and Park Ki Hyung would throw up if they had to pitch. In the TV broadcast, you can see that both bullpens are empty. Also empty was Carmine Gambino's suite in right field. After the whispers of his wife's affair with Mr. Clean had rocked the city that morning, Carmine was reportedly in a state of total despair. Carmine was moping around all day in a terrible mood, and I hated to see him like that. It really gutted me. So I says to Carmine, I says, I rented out this motorcycle, and you're going to get into the sidecar that's attached to it, and we're going to go for a drive. I took him up to the Catskills, and we just sat on the edge of a canyon for hours, looking at the beautiful leaves, watching them fall to the earth. Later, we went apple picking. I will always remember that day. A truly beautiful afternoon. Didn't make him any happier, though. Back in lower Manhattan, the pitching duel continued. But in the bottom of the eighth, something really, really scary happened. Two outs in the bottom of the eighth. Catcher Richard Brody is up for the Gambinos. Kobe winds up and delivers to Brody, and oh my, Kobe Bryant is down. He took a line drive right to the head. He is not moving. His cat ears lay in a tangled mess on the ground. Oh my lord. Colby laid on the field for 10 minutes. But watching the footage, we see Lane, for the first time in over a decade, showing fatherly concern for his son. In that moment, he finally stops seeing an opponent or the person responsible for the death of his wife. In that moment, Lane Bryant is just a father, scared to death for his boy. The stadium has fallen quiet, and it looks like... Brian is getting up. He's shaking it off. The paramedic has pulled out an Asian comic book and he's showing him panels and he's smiling. It seems like he's going to be okay. His father, Lane, has stopped pacing back and forth, but he's still standing out there. Wonder what he's thinking. 
Colby retires the side in the bottom of the eighth. Lane goes out for the top of the ninth and looks a little shaky. Dan Sandwich gets a walk to lead things off, but after he sees his son in the on-deck circle, Lane snaps back in. He picks off Sandwich at first. Carl Carter pops up two pitches later. So here we are. Two men whose lives have been lived almost exclusively in spite of each other, facing off in front of millions of people, looking each other in the eye for the first time in 20 years. And here we go. Bryant steps in to face Bryant. Lane takes a deep breath. Now he's stepping off of his mound. Colby stares back at his father. And Lane smiles back at Colby. And now Colby is smiling back at Lane. Lane nods to Colby, Colby nods to Lane, and Lane gets back on the rubber, winds up and delivers, and Colby got a hold of that one. Good night is back. He is not going to get it. That ball is gone. The Weeb has done it. The Weeb has done it. The Weeb has given the Pickers the lead in the ninth inning, and Lane is now walking into the dugout, laughing to himself like he has just heard a joke that only he knows the answer to. None of the lower Manhattan fans even seem to be upset. Men are hugging their sons. Tears are being shed. Ah, hell, I forgot to shoot my gun. Colby went back out and retired the Gambinos in order in the bottom of the ninth, giving the Pickers the 1-0 victory in Game 5. When Francis Bipock struck out, Opie White threw his hat into the air. Huge clumps of his hair came out. He yelled... At a boy, Grang, seemingly hallucinating that Colby was his dead brother, and he fell over before he could make it to the mound. Most of the pickers didn't notice, as they were surrounding Colby. In the midst of the throng, Colby was fist-bumping each of his teammates because he didn't like to be hugged. That would be the last game that Lane Bryant ever pitched. He was seen after the game riding a horse into the sunset. As he rode off, a reporter asked where he was going. Lane said, I'm off to find the Duke. John Wayne had died that summer. In the coming years, many people in various states in the West said they saw Lane riding a horse through their land. He became sort of a Bigfoot type of character, but nobody ever talked to him. The Gambinos suddenly found themselves one game away from elimination. The entire Gambino crime organization was fully mobilized for game six down in Nashville, and riding with them was a pale horse named Death. Next time on A Closer Look.